Well, if you're here for uh, the first time, I especially want to welcome you, and it's my sincere hope that you will anticipate Sundays here at FCF Church, and it will become one of the more meaningful times of your week. Also, our online family, uh, we want to welcome you as well as we continue in this series, and it's a series called Life in a Word, and what I've said each week is that as complicated as we are as human beings and as complicated as our lives are, a lot of times you can sum up our whole life and really our whole identity for that matter in just one word. And so today we deal with the word misfit. And to give you, you know, something to get started with, uh, the picture that comes to my mind, it's like, imagine you've got a jigsaw puzzle, it's like 500 pieces, and you know, you've been working your way through it, and there's just one piece, you just keep trying it in various places, but it never quite fits, and finally the entire puzzle is finished, and right in the middle there's this gaping hole, you have one piece, but when you try to put that piece in, it just doesn't fit, it doesn't fit anywhere in the puzzle, and so you start thinking that, that piece must be a mistake. And then what you typically do is you just take it and you throw it away. You reject it. And a lot of people, a lot of people feel that exact same way. The word feel, I'm going to use a lot today. Some of us feel like we're misfits. Like we're always on the outside looking in. Like we, we just don't connect. We feel maybe like a reject. We might even feel like a mistake. We might have been told that we were mistakes. So that's what we're going to deal with today. And of course, it's dealing kind of centrally with the notion of rejection. And rejection is um, it's a very, very hurtful experience to human beings. In fact, they've done tests on this showing that that the same tracks in our brain that track physical pain track emotional pain, and that frankly the emotional pain is even worse because it can be recalled more readily than can physical pain. In other words, you might break your leg when you're six or seven years old, but you probably by the time you're 25 don't remember it. But if you have your feelings hurt deeply enough as a seven-year-old, you might remember that until you're 77 years old because you can recall it. Now there's a reason why we have such trouble with this. We are love-governed beings, therefore we are vulnerable to whatever causes us to feel, emphasis again, to feel whether we actually are loved or not, to feel loved or to feel unloved whether we actually are or not. Anything that causes you or I or any living, breathing human being that you will ever meet to feel loved or unloved, let me just tell you what it does. It goes right through your shields and my shields. We cannot shield it out. It always strikes our core to some degree. Now, there's a good reason for this. The good reason for this is that we are made in the image of our creator who is love personified. He intended for us to be created in his image, to be beings that are love-driven, and to live in a world where we are surrounded every day, 24-7, all the time, with perfectly loving beings, a loving environment, a loving culture, to be safe, secure, satisfied all the time. That's what you were meant for. That's what each human was meant for. But we know that's not now the world we live in. And the scripture explains that that's because there was, first of all, an angelic rebellion against the will of God and the design of God. And then it became a human distrust factor that's occurred. We, we kind of feel like forging our own way in life is more likely to be happy than to unite back with our creator and trust and live the way he designed. So we're vulnerable to this. Let's look on again. 
Here's the second point. We, we tend to evaluate our worth based on our feelings. Notice, again, I'm not saying it's accurate, but our feelings of being wanted, liked, or loved. We may actually be wanted, liked, and loved, but if we don't feel like it, it doesn't matter. We tend to feel like we don't matter very much. We tend to feel like our worth is pretty inconsequential. So rejection or being like a misfit or feeling a misfit, it's very powerful. Third, here's where we have to really kind of screw our thoughts down and, and focus. Ironically, when we fight for acceptance or love, which is exactly what we tend to do, if we feel like, I'm just saying, if we feel like, whether it's true or not, we're not being accepted or not being loved, we tend to fight for it, we tend to work for it, and when we do this, we actually deprive ourselves of the capacity to truly experience either. Let that sit on the screen for a minute and soak in. What I am saying is, when you and I get pushed into this cycle of working for, trying to earn, fighting for acceptance or love, as we are doing that, we are literally destroying the internal capacity to ever actually feel loved or wanted. We'll always be in a struggle. We'll always be wondering. We'll always be feeling, I need to run a little higher, I need, you know, run a little faster, jump a little higher. We'll always struggle with insecurity as long as we have set our course on fighting for or trying to earn love and acceptance. And, and that's so counterintuitive to the way we, we feel when we experience rejection of any sort. So this kind of gets us started on the track of where we're going with this notion of being a misfit or feeling like a misfit. And there's an individual in Scripture that I want to take us to focus in on now because he, he is the epitome of the misfit. And it's in the book of Judges. If you want to turn there, it's page 281. You'll be looking at Judges chapter 11. I'll give you a little bit of background as you, get, you find your way there. The Bible's near you on the chair, 281, your own Bible, book of Judges. I don't know the page number in your Bible. Um, when you come to the book of Judges, just to give you a little historical background, God, through Moses, has led the Israelites out of their Egyptian bondage. They have been now established as a nation, and Joshua, after Moses' death, has led them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. God pushed out the tribes living there by the Israelites because he waited for 400 years for them to stop doing the horrific things they were doing, uh, child sacrifice, all kinds of other abominations. After 400 years, he said, okay, I'm going to send my people to Israel. They're going to push you out of the land. And under Joshua, about a seven and a half year military campaign, they, they gained most of the land of Canaan, but they never gained it all. They, did, they didn't push the inhabitants out of the land the way that God had told them. So when you come to the book of Judges, it's about a 300 to a 350 year period from the point where Joshua dies and the point where Israel has their first king, Saul. In between is where you get the book of Judges, and it's a chaotic period. There's, there's no strong leadership, and the people are just going in all different directions. There's seven cycles in the book of Judges, if you ever study it on your own, and the cycles are all the same. They just keep repeating seven times. The people of God drift away from God because when Joshua died off, there was no strong leader. They drift away from God. When they drift away from God, their lives run into consequences. When they experience the consequences, the pain, they cry out to God for help and deliverance. And then God sends them an individual called a judge. Now, you got to think of it this way. It's not a judicial judge like in our system. A judge in the biblical sense 
was one who was a spiritual leader and often a military leader simultaneously. So that's what these judges were. There were about 14 of them if you study the book. But these seven cycles, and these seven cycles are important to us because, you know, we can all identify with that a little bit. You know, we, we get going with God and things start to stabilize a little bit. Then all of a sudden we get loose. We drift from God. We start drifting back into the patterns of our past. Next thing you know, we run, we run onto some rocks and some consequences and we start feeling pain because of it. We cry to God, oh God, help me. I can't stand living this way. He comes, brings his truth into our life, restores us, and then hopefully we walk it out. But they go through seven cycles this. All right. We're going to meet one of these judges now, and his name is Jephthah. Let's read verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to jump you to verse 29 through 31. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a brave warrior. His mother was a, what's the word? Mother was a prostitute. Bible's a very honest book. But Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife also gave him sons when his wife's sons grew up. They made Jephthah leave, and they said to him, You're not going to inherit any of our father's wealth, because you are another woman's son. So Jephthah left his half-brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. Lawless men joined Jephthah's gang and traveled with him. It was some time after this when the Ammonites fought with Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the leaders of Gilead asked Jephthah to come back from the land of Tob. They said, come be our commander so we can fight with the Ammonites. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, but you hated me and you made me leave my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that may be true, but now we pledge to you our, what is the word? And when you feel like a misfit, you are desperate to believe that somebody somewhere will stick with you and want you and love you and never abandon you. You are desperate for loyalty. And dangling that carrot before Jephthah and before some of us is just about irresistible. Let me pick back up. Come, come with us and fight with the Ammonites. Then you will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, all right, if you take me back to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will judge any grievance you have against us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the leaders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander. Jephthah repeated the terms of the agreement before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, before I go on, I'll just say a few things. Jephthah shows himself to be a very intelligent, diplomatic guy. He tries to work with the Ammonites. He tries to avoid this war. He's very good in what he does in these verses that are in between. Finally, the Ammonites will have none of it. They're, they're determined for a fight, and so... Jephthah prepares himself for that. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, the Lord's spirit did what? What is the word? Empowered Jephthah. So Jephthah now has been empowered by God to go forward in this battle to win back the land that God had given to the Israelites. He passed through Gilead, Manasseh, and went to Mizpah in Gilead. From there he approached the Ammonites. Jephthah 
made a vow to the Lord saying, and listen to the doubt in this vow. If you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, then whoever is the first to come through the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, he will belong to the Lord and I will offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Burnt sacrifice, just to give you a reference, the Israelites had, had a lot of sacrifices. Might want to do something about that. <laughs> the Israelites had a lot of sacrifices that were shared where the offering would be burnt and then fed to the priest. But the burnt sacrifice was different in that it was a holocaust. It was just completely burned up and offered to the Lord. So Jephthah, he didn't have to make this vow. Uh, God was already empowering him to be effective. But he is so insecure, he, he feels so unworthy that he makes this rash vow. He, say, he says, oh, okay, God, uh, you know, if you'll do this for me, if you'll really do this for me, well, then whatever comes through the doors in my, my house, you know, I'll, I'll offer that up as a complete Holocaust offering to you. Now, Jephthah probably expected there would come, you know, a, a lamb through there or some other, you know, type of cattle. But what happens in the story is tragic. Jephthah has one child, one child only. It's a daughter. And when he comes back victorious and God gives him the victory, it is his daughter that comes through the gates. And now he's ready to go through with this ridiculous vow that God never asked him to make. In fact, God was throwing the Canaanites out of the land for that very thing, for burning up their children as sacrifices. So Jephthah's daughter, she submits and she says, you, you vowed it to the Lord let, let it be. She says, give me a couple months to mourn that I'll never have a child, and then what happens, happens. Now, here's the thing. We do not know what this meant. Scholars are kind of divided on this. Did he actually burn her up and sacrifice her? That would have been an abomination in Israel. It's highly unlikely. What it sounds like happened, though, is that she would never marry for an Israelite woman. Every Israelite woman at that time, they wanted to have children, especially they wanted to have a son in hopes they were producing the Messiah. It looks as though she lived the rest of her life never to marry, never to have children. Worst case scenario, Jephthah literally lights her up. We, we don't know which way this goes. You'll see the point, though, of why he did this, and how normative it is for people that feel like misfits, feel like rejects, to do this sort of thing. I'm going to take you on a, on a little bit of a turn here, but follow with me because we're going somewhere. Uh, back on December 29th of 2012, young lady, her name is Naomi Oni. She's 20 years old. She's coming home from work. She was in training to be a makeup artist. She has uh, just recently gotten off the subway. She's walking toward her house, and a lady in a veil uh, comes up to her, and before she knows it, she feels something burning in her face. The woman in the veil threw acid in her face. She's a 20-year-old girl. Here's her picture. Now, this is looking pretty good. It burnt off her eyebrows. It burnt off the, her eyelids. It burnt off all her hair. Uh, they had to do massive reconstructive surgery on her face. Some parts were completely destroyed. They put new eyelids on her. And as you can see, she's still heavily scarred. She's 25 years old now and still pursuing, wanting to be a makeup artist. But as you might expect, there's not a lot of offers to makeup artists that look like that. 
She adds, too, she's never had a boyfriend since that incident. So here's the backstory. Here's the picture of the assailant. You can see the lady with the veil, and that's actually uh, Naomi in the front there. Well, they took over a year, Scotland Yard, uh, Scotland Yard investigating this, and it got so bad at one part, uh, at one point that they actually were accusing Naomi of throwing acid in her own face, uh, which turned out to be utterly ridiculous. And, of course, finally, they traced down evidence, and they found that one of her best friends, childhood best friend, all through her life, her and this girl, um, that she was actually the one that threw the acid in her face. Now, here's what's amazing. She has forgiven this girl, and the girl is now serving 20, or actually 12 years, 12 years in prison. But I'm introducing all this to you to, to say this. When when we experience sufficient rejection, particularly in our formative years, that this is what it's like. Early rejection is like acid in the face of our souls. We feel unattractive. We feel different. We feel ruined. We feel defective. We feel deficient. We feel deformed. We feel like we are ugly. Whether we are or not. I'm going to say it again. Early experiences of rejection are like acid in the face of our soul. And here's some of the things it produces usually. We feel different. And I don't mean different in a good way. We feel that we're different in a, in a bad way. We're different. We're not as good as others. We're not as smart. We're not as talented. We're different. We're deficient. We feel unattractive. We feel undesirable. Nobody ever want us. We feel that, unwanted. And then the real killer, we feel unlovable. We feel like nobody's ever going to really love me for myself. Nobody's ever going to stay with me. Nobody's ever really going to love just me. And we feel like we are rejects, misfits. Now, I don't know. I don't know who I'm talking to. I mean, I know some of you personally, but I don't know your story. It's going to take a lot of hundreds of years in heaven to really get to know all your stories. And nor do you know mine, but I'll just say this much. I, I know way too much about this subject. I, there's, there's so much about this I wish I did not know because it is, it is hurt and wounded and tripped me up and tormented me through a great deal of my life. And I suspect that it's done the same thing to some of you, at least, if not a lot of you. More than that, I suspect it's doing more than that to some of us in here this morning, that it's continuing to be a torment. You just feel like you don't connect ever. You're different, but you're not different in a good way. So here's the first point that I want to make with you. Never, and this is, this is going to seem so counterintuitive, never try to fight for what should be freely given by people. Our tendency when we feel like misfits, like rejects, like we're deficient, like we're unattractive, is to do something. I, I'm going to try to do something. I'm going to try to change. I'm going to try to, you know, win people's approval. I'm going to do something to cure this thing, just like Jephthah. I, I, I'll do it. If I come and fight for you, will, will you then, will you then like me? Will you then really want me? Will you then be really loyal to me? I'll do. We tend to fall into that cycle, and it is, it is the curse. It makes it impossible for us to ever heal. Let, let me have that on the screen one more time because I really want it to sink in. 
Never. You got to settle this in your soul. If you don't get anything else in this message, get the two points. The first point is this. Never try to fight for what should be freely given by people. You say, Randy, what, what, what do you mean it should be freely given by people? Listen to this verse from the New Testament. If I could go, go down. The Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Rome, he says, keep out of debt altogether. Man, he didn't understand Americans, did he? <laughs> it's a good idea. <laughs> keep out of debt altogether. Except, except the perpetual the idea is continual, ongoing, never-ending debt. What debt is that? What is the perpetual, never-ending debt? The debt of what? Love, which we what? Owe to who? You owe me, man. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. I owe you. God created humankind in his own image. God is personified as love incarnate. God intended for us to reflect his love. We were to receive love from God, feel safe and secure and loved without doing anything, and then we were to give that same love to everybody we meet. You owe everybody you ever meet, and I owe everybody I ever meet a debt of love. Don't confuse it with like. Sometimes people are really hard to like. How many of you know people are really hard to like? Can I just see your hands? Okay. But love, love, God's kind of love is I'm going to seek to serve you. I'm going to seek to bless you. I'm, going to, I'm even going to seek to like you if I can, but I'm going to love you no matter what. And I owe you that. I owe you respect. I owe you courtesy. I owe you kindness. I owe you patience, though I'm going to fail and you're going to fail. But don't try to earn. Don't try to fight for what should be freely given. You should be, I should be, from your birth, from my birth, we should have been loved. We should have been cared for the way that God wanted us cared for. And everybody that we ever met in life should have treated us the way that God wanted us to be treated. It should have been loved. But you know and I know that's not so. That's not this world. Because the world is in a chaotic state right now. Most in the world are not walking in trust with Christ, their creator, but we're just kind of making it up as we go. And because of that, we're like bumper cars, man. We're colliding with each other and hurting each other. And the debt of love that is owed to you, you're not going to always get it. You have to understand that. But you do need to know you deserve it, even though you're not always going to get it. Here's another one from the book of Romans. It says, Christ accepted you. Christ accepts all of us he, in our brokenness, in our imperfection, even in our rebellion. So you should do what? Accept each what? Each other. Accept each other, which will bring glory to God. Now, acceptance doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with everything that you do or that you agree with everything that I do or every thought that I think or every thought that you think. But it does mean that I recognize you're made in the image of God and my arms are going to be open to you. I'm going to welcome you the best I can into my life and I'm going to welcome you with the idea that I want to serve you the way God wants you to be served. That's what it means to accept one another. Now, be careful of the trap. On the one hand... Never fight for what should be freely given to you by people. They owe you. They owe you a debt of love. But please don't fall into the trap of expecting to get it from everybody you meet. 
Because if you expect to get love and respect from everybody you meet, you know and I know you will be sorely disappointed. And let me tell you what will happen next. You'll become very angry. You'll become very hostile. You'll get disappointed. You might even get depressed. And you will become extraordinarily vulnerable to all kinds of things that are negatives in your life. Let me just go a little further. When we are those that feel like, feel like misfits, feel like rejects, feel like we don't connect, feel like we don't belong, feel like we're never going to be understood or loved or any of those things, when we feel that way, we become incredibly vulnerable for anything, any small thing that will ease that feeling of pain at all, anything that will just distract us even for a little while from that uncomfortable feeling that we live with every day, and this makes us very vulnerable to reckless living, to impulsivity, as well as multiple types of addiction. Because you see, the addiction, you, you, you kind of break out of the mood. It alters your mood, and you don't feel that uncomfortable feeling inside of feeling like a reject, of feeling unloved, unwanted, deficient, and all that stuff. We become very vulnerable. These, these people can brand our souls. Jephthah was cursed as a young man. Fascinating thing. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it said that he left, and he went to live in the land of Tob, and it said that he drew around himself a group of lawless men. And they were his gang. The gang phenomenon is really not a hard thing to understand whatsoever. The gang phenomenon is usually caused by people who were not loved the way God intended them to be loved in their early formative years. And they are so desperate to feel like they belong that they just want to find some community somewhere that they feel safe with, respected by, and somebody that it will be loyal to them. It says that, that Jephthah's men were loyal to him. I did some thinking back, and I look back at my life and all the dudes that I hung with when I grew up in the streets in, in Washington, D.C., and it struck me that we all had one thing in common. I mean, literally, all of us had it in common. We all came from broken homes. We all came from homes that we used to just laugh about and make fun of because our, our parents, our caretakers were so ridiculously terrible at what they were supposed to be doing and we clung to each other because at least we felt like somebody liked us, somebody was loyal to us, somebody made us feel significant. And you see, you become vulnerable. We become vulnerable when we don't receive this kind of love, particularly in our early developmental stages, before our cognitive you know, abilities develop and so on. So what do we do about it? We, we, we are owed love, but we're not going to get love. And we don't want to get angry and bitter because we know we're not going to get it. So what do we do? Here, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says maybe, maybe a person is punished when he has done nothing wrong. Jephthah did nothing wrong. It was not his fault that his father went out and involved himself with a prostitute. His brothers threw him out for no good reason. He didn't deserve that. Maybe a person is punished when he's done nothing wrong. God is saying, listen, you may not do anything wrong and you still may get punished sometimes. If... If he takes these troubles to do what? To please God. So, so I'm getting something I don't deserve, but I'm going to take it, and I'm not going to become bitter. I'm not going to become angry. I'm not going to become vindictive. I'm just going to take it, and I'm going to try to stay pleasing to God. If he takes these troubles to please God, he does a what? Very good thing in the sight of God. It goes on. If God allows you to suffer, do what? Trust him. Now, now put it together again. You're suffering. You are not happy. You are potentially miserable. You're maybe heartbroken. And God says, it's okay. Just 
trust me. Just trust me. You know, don't take things in your hands. Don't blow up. Don't, don't be vindictive. Don't become bitter. Don't become cynical. Just trust me. Come to me with your pain. Come to me. You can, it goes to the, he made you, and you can what? You can trust him. We have to be able to relate to our creator experientially every day of our life. You understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's not, a, if all we're doing is, is doing like a church thing once a week and the rest of the week we just go about our business and it's, it's as though God's not there, we're not going to receive the healing nor the strength that God wants to give to us. Let me go back to that verse. No, 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 back to the verse. There we go. If God allows you to suffer, trust him. He made you and you can trust him. But then what does it go on to say? What does it say? But keep on what? You see, our, our tendency is we, we just get down. Oh, man, nobody likes me. Nobody loves me. I don't have any talent. I don't have any intelligence. And I never fit anywhere. I don't belong. You know, nobody understands me. Nobody wants me. Nobody loves me. And we get down on ourselves or we get angry and bitter. I know I don't deserve to be treated this way. And I'm going to lash out at everybody and everything. But God says, don't do either of them. He says, look, I know you trust me. Come close to me and keep doing what is good. Jephthah did what was good, even though they were using him. And I think he kind of knew they were using him, but he was so desperate for any, any small appearance of affection and acceptance that he leaped at it and risked his life to get it. He was fighting for something that we should never fight for. Some of you just need to stop it right now. You, you, you've been all your life. You've been struggling. You've been fighting. You, you're like a chameleon. You turn yourself into a, a hundred different things. You try this. You try that. You try one persona, another persona. You're always trying to figure out what it is that people want, what's going to make you more attractive to them, more interesting, more likable, more lovable. And, and you just need to stop. A loving God is here today saying, just stop it. Make up your mind. You're never going to try to fight for what should be freely given to you just because you're made in the image of God you deserve to be loved now remember what I said you're not going to get what you deserve so you've got to trust yourself to God or you'll get bitter or depressed or both I came across online I didn't want to put this person's name because I just didn't didn't feel like it was right I, I didn't want to act like I agreed with everything this person writes but they went through a terrible rejection experience and I loved the way this person came out on the other side of it listen to this she I'll give it away it is a she not anybody from our church she says our lives will be filled with different cast members that's the differing people coming in and out of our lives some are temporary some come in to shake things up some are critical to the plot. Some will change the storyline forever. She goes on. Don't give so much power to a person who was never meant to be in the permanent cast of your life story. Now, that might be apparent. That might have been somebody early in your life that should have loved you dearly and completely. And you have to make a decision. I'm going to love them, but I'm not going to let them have so much power over me anymore. Don't give so much power to a person who was never meant to be in the permanent cast of your life story. Go out there, love fully. Remember we read in Peter, do good. Even if you're suffering unjustly, continue to do good. That's loving generously. Love generously. Love with reckless abandon. That means I'm going to love even though I might get hurt. Because even if I get hurt, I know that God's capable of healing the hurt that I get. 
I'm going to love with reckless abandon because that's how you create magic. That's how you create a life worth living and a story worth telling. That is really good advice. That is really good conclusions about when we are made to feel like a misfit. So never try to fight for what you should freely be given. Second point, never try to earn. Never try to earn what is freely given by God. We often do this. Jephthah did this. God had already empowered him. Remember we read it. God had given him the power to do what he needed to do, to be who he needed to be. But he, he thought, no, 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 no. I, I got to get God in a bargain because I really don't think he's going to want to use somebody like me. He's not going to work through me. So, okay, God, I, I'll, I'll offer you this, this big sacrifice if you'll, really, if you'll really give me victory. You can read it over on your, your own. This is trying to earn from God what he freely gives. And we often, when we are struggling with feeling like misfits, like rejects, we, we often do this. We often feel like, even with God, I, I've got to work really hard. I've got to be something special. I've got to do something special to gain his love, to maintain his love, to sustain his love. I, I, it's, not, it's not enough just to offer me. I mean, I, you know, just, just plain me not doing anything or just being my, my imperfect self, that, that's not enough. But it is. It is enough. Listen to what it says in the New Testament book of Romans. Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Rome. He says, when people work, their pay is not given as a gift, but as what? You work, you know, somewhere. And at the end of the week, when they give you your check, that's not a gift, is it? You work for your money. You earn your money. It's not a gift. But, But it goes on. It goes further. But people cannot do any work that will make them right with who? We can't do any work to make ourselves right with God. But, 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 you know what? If I, if I, God, if I, if I go to church every Sunday, you know, will you then, you then like me? Will you then accept me? Will, will you make me part of your, your team? God, God, if I read my Bible every day, what if I pray every day? What if I give, you know, all my money away to you? Will, will you then make me part of you? What does it say? Go back. But people cannot do any work that will make them right with God. Okay, so what will make us right? So they must, what is the word? Trust him. That's it. A loving, intelligent, rational God cannot want anything more of his finite creatures than that we trust him. He cannot bring his love, his blessing into our lives unless we are teachable trusting him, willing to learn his ways, learn his will, do his ways, do his will, all he ever wants, all he could want, there can be no other condition that would satisfy an infinite loving being other than his created beings, his finite beings, would simply trust him. That's all he could possibly ever want. It goes on. So they must trust him, trust in him, who makes even evil, evil people right in his sight, then God accepts their faith, that word faith and trust, that is the same exact Greek word in the original language. Uh, so then God accepts their trust, their faith, and that makes them what? What does it say? Right with him. You might be sitting there and you, you, you might be one of these people that you say, I think I'm saved, but I don't know if I'm saved. I think I'm saved, but I don't know. I went forward, I said the prayer, I did, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saved. I, 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 I hope I'm saved. I hope everything will go good when I stand before God. Listen, settle it right now. I don't even care what you've done in the past. If right now, right now, 
you trust Jesus Christ, the one who created us, the one who died on the cross to prove his trustworthiness and love, if you say, I, Lord Jesus, trust you, and because I trust you, you can check it out, Lord, because I trust you, you can watch me, you're going to see, I want to follow you, I want to learn your word, I want to learn your will, I want to learn all your ways, and I'm going to live them out, you're going to see it, Jesus, because I trust you, you're going to see that's who I am, because I am your follower, I am a Christian. If that describes you, you should never doubt Ever again in your life, whether or not you are a member of God's family. When you make the decision to trust in Christ and the evidence of that trust is you become his follower, you are what scripture calls saved, but it's a potential saved. You're, you're saved in that your eternal destiny is secured, but God wants to start right now saving us from the thing that's really hacking our life to bits. And that's our own sin. And he wants to start saving us from insane living right now. So we can't earn. We, we can never earn what God freely gives. We shouldn't even try. First Peter adds a piece to this. He says, you yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. He's talking to people. He's talking to Christians, imperfect people. He's saying God's taking us and putting us aside of each other, connecting us so that we do belong. We do fit in. We're going to be an eternal community. We're going to be together forever. And Christ is the one doing that. One of the things that, that, that struck my heart the first year I was a Christian, Jesus said he'd never leave me and never forsake me. I had been forsaken by about everyone in my life, and that meant everything to me then when I was 23, and it means everything to me now at 68. Jesus also said that if I belong to his people, his community, his church, I belonged I could go any, this, is, this has been in my heart and life all my life. I could go anywhere in the world where God's people are, and I know I will be accepted. I know, not with everybody, not with every single person, but there'll be somebody, some of Christ's followers, they will know me, they will want to know me, they will like me, they will love me, they will accept me, and I've lived with that security, and that's yours. That's God's gift to you. Look at this verse again. You yourselves are being built together like living stones in a spiritual temple, and then it goes on. So you are no longer outsiders, no longer misfits, no longer rejects or aliens, but fellow citizens with every other Christian. You belong to the household of God. You know, like if he's got a refrigerator in heaven, it's like your picture's on it. You belong to the household of God. The actual foundation stone being Jesus Christ himself, and then it goes on to say this. In him, each separate piece of building, uh, of building properly fitted into its neighbor grows together into a temple consecrated to God. You are all parts, or you are all part of this building in which God himself lives by his spirit. You belong, you belong if you are a part of Christ. Let me ask you something. How many of you, you in here ever had a baby? I, I mean, I know if you're a guy, you haven't had a baby, but you kind of had a baby through your wife. How many of you have had a baby? Okay. Did you love that baby? Let me see. Everybody love their baby? Okay. <laughs> Why? Why What's that baby ever done for you? Here, here's a baby. That baby can't sing. That baby can't dance. That baby can't read. That baby can't write. That baby can't drive you to the store. That baby can't fix a computer. Uh, that baby has no influence or power on the social global level. Uh, that, that baby is utterly helpless. That, that baby's not even going to talk to you for a long time. <laughs> 
Why do you love that baby? It, it, I mean, the, the baby is not doing anything whatsoever to earn or deserve your love. Do you agree? It's, it's, it, let's be honest. It's a lump. It's, 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 it's a living lump. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. <laughs> no. The baby, the baby's love because of you. It's not about who the baby is. It is about who you are. It is not about what's in the baby even. It is about what is in you. You are loved. I'm talking about you now, not because of anything that's in you or in me, but you are loved and I am loved because of what is in God. And that, folks, is what you need to hang on to when you feel like a misfit who never belongs, never connects, is always judged, is always scrutinized, will never be accepted for who you are. You need to know that when you have nothing to offer because of who God is, because of what's in him, you are eternally his beloved. How much more, how much more when he looks into that heart of yours and he sees utter and complete childlike trust. That's what you and I need to hang on to when the torment of feeling like misfits rises up in our souls. I know I've gone long. I, I, I'm going to try to land this plane, man. The gear is down, I promise you. Um, <laughs> back in uh, 2016, very unusual occurrence, the Chicago Cubs made it to the World Series. They, they, had, not, you know, they had not won a World Series in 108 years. That is truly a record. They, it was the big joke that it was the curse, the cubby curse, you know. And so they get to the World Series, and they lose the first three games in the series. So it's looking like, yeah, the curse is still in effect. But they catch up. They catch up, and they tie the series up. So they're in the, the final seventh game, and in the seventh inning, they're winning over the Cleveland Indians 6-3. to three. It looks like the curse is going to be broken finally. But then the Cleveland Indians catch up. Ninth inning, it's all tied up, and, and the Chicago People, they're all thinking, here it is. It's the curse. The wheels are going to come off. It always does. It always comes off. But it seems like Providence intervened because it started raining like crazy, and they had to stop the game. So they stopped the game. They bring the tarps out on the field, and they wait for a while, and then they, you know, pull the tarps back. It dried up, and they played. Now, what happened in between is really, really important. Let me introduce you to one of the players. He's a right fielder, this guy named Jason Hayward. He goes back into the clubhouse during that ninth inning when they're waiting for the rain to stop, and he sees his fellow teammates written all over him. The curse, the curse of the Cubbies. All of them are beaten. They're defeated. They're down in the dumps. They're just waiting to be whooped one more time. And he starts talking to them. He says, hey, he says, do you know who you are? You are a team that had the best record in, the, in all of baseball this year. That's who you are. He said, let me tell you who else you are. You are the team that won two different playoff series. You're the team. That's who you are. And he said, let me tell you something else. You're the team that was down three to nothing in this series, and you came back and tied it. And right now the victory is in your hands. That's who you are. You're winners. You're victors. Long story short, you know how it ends. They go back out there, 10th inning, they win. After 108 years, they win the World Series. I got to believe. I got to believe. A lot of it was because they were reminded who they really were. You, if you've put your trust in Christ, you are the beloved of God. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. You don't have to run faster. You don't have to jump higher. He adores you, just you. 
You don't have to offer him anything. If you do, God bless you. That's good, but it's just you. You've got to live there, particularly if you know you've got this brand that you fight with inside that says misfit, reject, don't belong, unlovable, undesirable, ugly, deficient, whatever the tag is. You don't have to live there anymore. If you've trusted Christ, you just have to start living from your identity. Let's pray. God, I know exactly what you, what you want to do in so many of our hearts. Please help us to open wide, to be as vulnerable as we need to be, that your spirit can start this deep work and continue it until your kingdom and coming. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.